Welcome to Advance Your Art. If you are interested in making money from your art, using your artistic background to your advantage when switching careers, or if you are just plain stuck, you've come to the right place. Now let's get started and have some fun with your host, Yorika Talbo. Hello. Are you ready to turn your creative passion into a profitable business or break through that stuck feeling? Well, join me, Yuri Cataldo, on today's episode of, of Advance Your Art, where I dive deep into the journey of a successful creative entrepreneur, revealing their secrets to success. Don't forget to hit that subscribe, like, and share button if you've enjoyed this episode and want to stay ahead of the game. Today, joining me is Soon Yu, a best-selling author and expert on innovation and design. Soon, hello. Welcome to the show. How are you today? Doing well. Thanks for having me, Yuri. Of course, it is my absolute pleasure. Um, and so I, I know I gave a, a little introduction of you um, that was very vague, but for my listeners who are less familiar with your work, how do you describe yourself and what you do? Sure. Um, I always begin by telling people that it, everything I do stems from being a bit of a nerd. And a nerd is somebody who has just a lot of curiosity about topics and sometimes topics that people don't really have a lot of curiosity for. So uh, probably my main nerdiness is around the idea of brands. I I love this idea that um, we have relationships with brands, kind of like we have relationships with people. Um, over the years, as we you know buy a product or engage in a service or have a relationship with a company, um, we actually engage in a relationship with the brand of that product, service, or company, and we build up certain both feelings, expectations, and desires in that relationship. And I was always curious why some brands were so good at uh, standing the test of time and being relevant and important and, and creating loyalty um, uh, sort of endlessly and why others kind of like just, you know, came and went and, and faded so quickly. And so that nerdiness led me to write a couple of books. Uh, the first one was really called Iconic Advantage, and it kind of looked at how iconic brands became iconic. Mm -hmm. And the second one really looked at, hey, in order to build great brands, it requires more than just being the easiest or most convenient or the so-called uh, most seamless or frictionless um, brand experience. It actually sometimes requires the, the brand to ask and demand more of you as their customer. And I was like really curious about that phenomenon about actually not all frictions created equal. Uh, there's a lot of friction that's bad. You and I want to get rid of that stuff that creates annoyance or frustration or, or uncertainty. But there's also actually a lot of things that uh, people and brands and, and businesses ask of us to put more time and energy into that actually ends up being something where we become more engaged with them. We actually become more involved with them. We have more meaning, rapport, and a deeper relationship with that brand. And so that second book is called Friction, and it really looks at the idea of good friction, not just bad friction. <laughs> oh, wonderful. I, I, I love it. Well, we're going to actually get into your book in a little bit. But before we do, I want to talk a little bit about your background. And so um, so you studied elect electrical engineering, and then you went to get your MBA at, at Stanford. Um, talk to me about those early days. So what originally made you want to study electrical engineering and then go on to business school? Yeah, so I'm going to have to back up even a little bit before <laughs> high school. I, I, I grew up 
and we had some family friends and their father was an electrical engineer and in his garage he had um, a soldering kit with a bunch of wires and transmitters and you know uh, radio shack equipment and you know uh, uh, i think like am fm radios and a whole bunch of stuff right and i was always curious and i'd always watch him in the garage soldering stuff together and repairing stuff or or putting things together and all of a sudden you know magic would happen if he flipped a switch and that always made me very curious as to this idea of um you know um taking electronics and and, and actually creating some magic out of it so that i had curiosity yeah curiosity on that um on the other end i always actually had a penchant for uh fashion mm-hmm. and so when i was in high school i was in uh, davis uh, california at the time and uh, we had a big university there university of california davis and I would go to their main library, Shields Library, and I would remember checking out the 1930s, 1940s, and 1950 Vogues, okay, Vogue magazines. And I would always be the one like trying to analyze, okay, in this decade versus that decade, what were the patterns that were maintained and what things, what new things were introduced? And so I always took a very analytical approach to the idea of fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had those two passions. One was, hey, fashion design, and the other was potentially do some type of engineering. And I came from a very strict Asian family, and mm-hmm. they just weren't going to pay for fashion school. So <laughs> I ended up by default, uh, by necessity, uh, going to uh, engineering school, actually at UC Davis and studying okay. double E there. Mm-hmm. I found myself doing pretty well because, hey, you know, math. Uh, and solving equations and stuff like that seemed to come naturally for me. But I also found that I didn't have a lot of passion for it. And I remember between my junior and senior year, I actually worked as an electrical engineer making semiconductors for a big organization called AMD. I don't know if you ever heard of AMD, Advanced mm-hmm. Micro Devices. They were the main competitor to Intel, and they were mm-hmm. always sort of the second fiddle to Intel at the time. And now, actually, their market cap is bigger than Intel. So they're actually bigger than Intel now, AMD is. But anyway, back then, um, I was a double E making semiconductors, and I realized I'm interacting with computers 80% of my time, and I miss sort of interacting with humans and kind of the the camaraderie of of, of the social interaction and all that. And so I spent my senior year at Davis interviewing for anyone that wasn't electrical engineering. So I remember going in an interview with Safeway. Uh, they're a big grocery chain oh, yeah. here, right? Mm-hmm. And it was for their produce training program. What's funny is they were paying almost the same amount as a uh, newbie engineer for HP. And I remember sitting down, the guy goes, are you sure you're in the right interview? You know, <laughs> HP is in the next building interviewing there. That, that, you know, you, you want to. So it's so funny. I sat me down. He goes, okay, well, name seven types of lettuces and i probably came up with three i think butter leaf i, I said green leaf and i said ah, what was it oh uh, that was an iceberg so uh needless to say uh, fa- say i failed that interview and didn't make it to the second round for the safeway produce training program kind of sad yeah. about that uh, but one of the companies actually came around and interviewed was a consulting firm 
Mm-hmm. And it was, I didn't know anything about consulting firms, but apparently it was one of the name brand consulting firms because, but it was the only one that came around. Okay. So I interviewed and somehow lucked my way into being the, uh, I think, token hire from Davis uh, for Bain and Company. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just so happened that the head of the office, uh, Tom Tierney, who eventually became the predecessor to Mitt Romney, um, uh, leading all of Bain, uh, CEO of Bain, mm-hmm. uh, apparently he'd went to Davis. And so, um, normally they would hire from the Pomona colleges and from Stanford and Berkeley, but they did this one little token hire from Davis and I was it, man. So I showed up day one at Bain and um, I had imposter syndrome up the wazoo. I didn't know what it was at the time. I just felt like, you know, fish out of water and way in over my head for many reasons. One, it was hard being a 22 year old to you know, sitting in a, a, a meeting with a 40 year old and trying to tell them how to run their business. I mean, just because I had a, done a spreadsheet, it just felt really inauthentic and quite frankly, just silly. And then on top of that, I, I felt like I, I didn't come from one of the marquee schools. Mm. And so it was one of the situations where I felt like a double, uh, double identity in terms of, uh, a, a, you know, a po- imposter, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I flailed pretty much at Bain and um, did a year of consulting on my own and just, you know, try, trying to like regroup. And because of the Bain experience and, and my managers coming, um, uh, had, having gone to some of the best business schools, they wrote me some wonderful recommendations. And then uh, uh, that and, and some good luck got me into Stanford. Um, by the by, by the way, Yuri, that was my third application to Stanford. I got rejected twice oh. before that. Okay, so I, I got rejected as an undergrad. I, re, I got rejected to business school. Uh, I applied right out of um, undergrad and got rejected. Mm-hmm. And then I finally got in on the third try. Okay, so <laughs> just so you know. Um, and yeah, that's kind of how I ended up at um, being a double E and not really being a double E. Okay. And then how I ended up in uh, business school because I honestly, I didn't know what to do with my life. Yeah. So let's, I, I know I'm particularly into the right now because I'm also finishing business school, but what oh, congrats, was- Congrats, congrats. Thank you. Thank you. I've, I've gone late, a little bit later in my my career, and um, uh, but it's been a very interesting and, and rewarding experience on my side of it. It's probably also because um, I have a lot of practical knowledge in the business world that I'm now applying. Um, so immediately that's one of the benefits of my program. And the difficulties of going full time and then working full time is mm. I'm I'm applying directly what I'm learning in the classroom at, at work. And it's for me, it's been it's been exciting. Um, but for you, what was your experience like in business school? And and are there lessons that you, you know, have used throughout your entire career that you learned in in business school? So I love where you're coming at. And, you know, I've spoken to professors who are teaching at the uh, business school today, and they talk about um, the executive management program that's kind of like what you're doing, right? Where you bring in people that have um, real world experience versus a bunch of young, smart people that have only had two or three, maybe four years of, of what I call real world experience. And they always tell me that the classes that they teach for the executive MBAs are so much richer, so much fuller, so much more interesting, so much more practical, and so much more real. Whereas the other ones tend to feel both a little theoretical. And so, first, I just want to say, 
that's really great that you came in, you're coming in with so much more experience. I think you're going to get a lot more out of it. Um, I guess I set, I, I set it up this way because for a young NBA, somebody that maybe only two or three or four years experience, a lot of the courses felt more theoretical than they felt like, Hey, how might actually use it in a real business setting? Because they are all so hypothetical. And I, I know both Harvard, a little bit of Stanford, they teach by um, doing a lot of role playing where you yeah. actually do a case study and then you have to take on certain roles within, you know, and, and pretend to be a sales manager here talking to blah, 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 blah. And I always felt those forced because we're imagining roles that we've never actually had to remotely even work with, let alone be in. And so I guess the simple answer to your question is for you, I think it's actually what you're using, what you're learning in classes and practicing is a lot more practical. Mm -hmm. Whereas what I learned in my two years in classes, most of it I've never used. Okay. Cause I don't even one remember it. Uh, two, I don't remember the context or relevancy of what it was for and why I'd ever use it. Mm -hmm. So the value of the business school was less about the classes I took, much more so about the relationships and the people that I got to know. Mm -hmm. And I didn't get to know a ton of people in my class, but the ones I did, they mattered. And they opened so many doors for me. Uh, and there's this sort of built-in um community slash camaraderie of being an alumni from the same business school that people will, you know, even if they don't know who you are and you send them a random email and just say you're alumni, they will tend to actually respond and will help you. Mm -hmm. And I find that network and the community incredibly valuable because you're thinking about it, you know, it's, 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 it is who, you know, in this situation. And uh, those folks that have gone to these type elite business schools, they tend to know some really important people. So, you know, it, it, it is one of those things where, yeah, I think the value is in the network. Yeah. And, and that's, that's, um, I mean, that was the other reason why I went back later on and I, and to, to your, like, to your example, I'm, I'm in the executive program. Um, and so everybody else that's in my program with me are also working and they've had, I think like 15 years of some kind of experience. And so there are instances where, um, some people who have like their profession is in the PE world, like go uh, private equity, go into deep details about deals they're actually making versus like the theoretical um, ideas. And so I can I can see that and also in some of the other classes that I mix in with with um, the, the other MBAs, just about how that kind of matters and things. And so that makes sense. Um, so in yours, I'm curious then about than your career post business school, um, because you've worked at a number of very well-known name brand companies. How did you decide, where did you, like, how did you decide to go on to each of these companies? And when did you decide it was time to move on that your, whatever time at that company was, had come to an end and, and you want to look for another opportunity? Sure. So coming out of business school, you know, there was a natural path a lot, a lot of folks took, which was go back into consulting because it was fairly lucrative and they actually paid for your tuition, you know, um, retroly, which gosh, that would, that would, that was great. You know, no debt. Uh, so it was a very tempting uh, 
option to actually go back do consulting. iBanking was another one where you know you could go and do deals and and help people merge companies and make acquisitions or whatnot and corporate finance, and that was also incredibly lucrative. None of those really appealed to me. I, I think I wasn't really in it for the money nor the debt reduction, although that had always been nice. But it was really – I was very curious about, like I said, brands and how people build great brands. And so I said, look, the closest thing I can think of that would give me exposure to that would be brand management. Mm-hmm. So I applied to a couple of brand management companies. Um, one of them happened to be in the Bay Area, uh, where which I was originally from. And it was Clorox. And so I got hired by Clorox. I was very excited about that. And I managed some of the most sexy brands that the portfolio could provide. I had toilet bowl cleaners. I had, you know, all the home home cleaning stuff, liquid plumber, uh, Formula 409, Tylex, soft, you know, whatever. So um, I learned that even in managing such sexy brands that it doesn't really matter how sexy your brand is. Uh, the idea of brand management is kind of like having kids. You don't, you don't care if they're not the, you know, uh, class valet Victorian or the homecoming king or queen. They're your kids, man. And you're going to do everything you can to make sure they're well-fed, educated, they get to school on time and, and they get all the opportunities available to them as anybody else. And that's kind of how I felt about brand management and, and managing brands like toilet bowl cleaners. I, I was going to do everything I could in my power to, to really own it mm-hmm. and, and to do, you know, and to, to do everything uh, to make that brand as successful as possible. And I think that's the, what the key takeaway I, I learned in, in, in managing brands like that. So I did that for a while. And I really had the itch to say, can I take some of the things I'm learning here from a, not theoretical, but a practice brand management point of view, and maybe apply it to running my own business. You know, I've gone to business school, I've done the consulting, and now I've done this brand management. You know, uh, the right the, the right next test, the crucible will be, can I actually start a business and take some of these things I've learned? So I started, a, uh, I quit. And I had this idea to start a allergy and asthma company because, you know, there were a lot of people with allergies and asthma and there's all Mm -hmm. these products that had recently been introduced and the whole industry is sort of in its infancy. And I said, hey, how might I accelerate that curve to get the products to the people that need them? And when I looked at all the models, and at that time it was around 97 when I left Clorox, the big, of course, um, distribution model was the internet. But I realized that people weren't very familiar with these products, and it probably required more of a retail experience for them to uh, both be aware and understand before they would even try the products. But I didn't know anything about retail. So I actually quit my job at Clorox and worked at Crate and Barrel for a whole year, Mm -hmm. making $5 an hour. And I wanted to do the whole year because I wanted to learn everything from the holiday, Christmas, Mad Rush to the you know, New Year's returns that everybody brought in to the inventory counting time to all of it, right? Mm-hmm. And while I was uh, making $5 an hour for a year, um, living off of Costco frozen chicken breasts and rice, um, I basically wrote the business plan for this idea, which I called Tight, and uh, got some people finally to invest behind it um, and uh, then launched the uh, store but while i was launching the store i realized it, it takes a long time for paint to dry sometimes the walls get put up and you know uh, fixtures to be made 
and we had all this inventory. And I said, well, it wouldn't be that hard to just convert this to an e-commerce mm-hmm. um, and also publish a catalog. So the day we opened the store, we actually launched the website and the catalog along with opening the store. And that was in 99, I want to say. And all of a sudden, we were the poster child for what is now known as multi-channel e-commerce or retail uh, or bricks and clicks or whatever, right? And and so then it was. It took me like two years to raise a million dollars. Literally within three months, I was able to raise an additional two rounds, totaling almost $40 million, right? It's just people were throwing money at me at that time because all of a sudden I had internet and right. then multi-channel. And we burned through that pretty fast. And let's just say that um, at one point, I was sort of the poster child of incredible success in multi-channel retailing. And a year later, I was the poster child of bankruptcies and layoffs and er- er- everything that sort of uh, went wrong with the internet. We were kind of the poster child of that too. Um, somehow we purchased Gazuntide out of the, 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 the rubbles and resurrected it. And then we managed it for a few more years. And then of all places, it got bought by Clorox. <laughs> yes. And so I was brought back into Clorox and was there for another few years doing, um, I think, uh, their allergy care business. And then also um, was one of their venture partners. Um, and, you know, that was part of the condition is that I come back with the, the assets. And uh, it was a fun experience to come back to, to Clorox, a great company. Um, and then I got recruited to, uh, of all things, to help Chiquita go from Chiquita, the the produce company, you know, bananas, right? Yeah. Go from purely um, commodity to more value added. So packaged salads, uh, healthy snacks. And so now not only can I name seven lettuces, I can probably name about 50 lettuces. So, you know, it all comes full circle. Yeah. I did that for quite a few years. And then I got another call and it was Kind of like another first full circle. I got a call from VF and they said, look, you want to come and work at a fashion company? I'm like, hell yeah, I work at a fashion company. And they needed somebody to lead up their innovation efforts. And so I became the global vice president of innovation. And if folks probably don't know VF, they probably know one of the 30 brands, North Face, Vans, Timberland, Seven for Mankind, Kipling, Nautica, I could go on, right? Uh, Supreme, yeah. whatever. And I was there for about seven years doing innovation, and it was a lot of fun. It was very exciting, and there was a leadership changing happening at VF. And you know, I'm I'm pretty public about this. I don't think the new CEO liked me very much. I kind of knew that it was not it was not a, a, a hidden secret. And so I talked to the existing CEO and said, you know, it's probably time for me to leave. He says, probably it is. Okay, so I left, and I had learned so much at VF in terms of building great brands and and we had um, met so many people that taught us so much in fact we had researched 50 different brands in terms of how they became timeless and became iconic mm-hmm. and I said wow I have all this IP why don't we put it into a book and so I wrote a book right after coming out of VF and kind of that's the rest is history I guess whatever in terms of yeah it's now two books in so yeah that's the story <laughs> <laughs> wow that's I mean that's that's been quite Quite the, the the journey and opportunities. That's that's absolutely phenomenal. Um, and in the in the meantime of all that too, you were also a pro- professor at, at Parsons. What was what was that like to be a, a professor in between? You know, post leaving VF. 
Yeah. So, you know, while I was writing my book, I hadn't really had this free time. And I said, I have all this IP. Why why, why not, you know, uh, share some of that? And so I thought I was going to be brought in to teach something around either design or innovation. Because one of the things I did lead at BF was a design initiative to really understand best practices around building great design um, capabilities. Mm -hmm. So I thought, oh, yeah, natural. But they had me teaching new economies. I don't know, what do you mean by new kind of, well, they want new macroeconomic theory. And I, I don't know anything about macroeconomic theory. So one, I, I had to learn and get up to speed fairly quickly on uh, new theories of macroeconomics. Uh, two, I had to be, learn how to become a great teacher all of a sudden out of nowhere. Three, I had to learn how to do it online because I was based in California and all my students were all over the place. I had people all the way in you know, I think uh, Asia all the way down to obviously Europe, and um, and so it was, it was a it was a very interesting experience. Uh, a lot of pressure. I found that teaching because you know um, I had students and they were looking up to me and they wanted to learn something that it was actually really demanding in a good way and very fulfilling at the same time. Um, by the way, the one thing I learned about these new economies and the new macroeconomic theory is. Take all the old macroeconomic theories, but what you probably want to add in is that economic value is not just purely about you know supply and demand or about investment plus you know savings plus all. You actually have to factor in two elements that the old models did not consider when they think about the idea of value creation. Mm-hmm. One of them was social welfare. What's the impact on society of whatever you're doing? Okay, is it positive or negative? And the last one is environmental impact. You know, are you basically raping the Earth's resources to the point where maybe you're making a lot of money, the country is making a lot of money, but the Earth is dying because of what you're doing. And so those two new sort of variables were added into all the old economic models. And so if I had to sum up that whole class in one minute, that's it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's good. Um, I. I do have one question for you. Since you've worked in the fashion industry and you are focused on this class about social welfare and economic impact, is there are there particular brands now that come to mind that you are like, these are great examples of fashion companies who are scoring very high in, in both of those categories? Yeah, so let me just step back and say, and it's not an unknown secret, but mm-hmm. there are two industries that really deplete resources um, from the earth more than other industries. And one of them, I think, is petroleum. Mm-hmm. And the second one, unfortunately, is apparel. It is apparel and footwear. It is one of the most wasteful and toxic, toxic to produce and wasteful. I mean, how many more North Face jackets do you really need? You know, now I'm a, I, I, full disclosure, I own a lot of stock in BF still. And so I want North Face to do well. But the truth of the matter is, um, you know, there, we, we have a lot of clothes that some of it we donate and it gets reused, but a lot of it just goes to waste. And the energy and the materials required to make each one. Do you need 20 jackets in your closet? Really? Do you really need 20 jackets? I don't think so. So it's one of the most harmful and wasteful um, industries in the world. So you start off with that premise. Now, are there companies inside of apparel that are doing it better? Probably. Patagonia definitely is, you know, one that comes to mind. But it's one of those things where you're 
you know, it's like you're moving an inch off of a, a tidal wave, right? It, it is, it's the industry is pretty, pretty tough. Yeah. I do think there are new models and businesses that are really looking at um, second life for clothing. Mm -hmm. And I'm very interested in those. And I think those businesses, you know, that are looking at whether it be handbags or clothing and, and looking at how do you reuse, you know, what has already been produced. I think those are very interesting. And the ones that you're the sort of like the idea of renting, um, mm -hmm. you know, your clothes, I, I think I'm very encouraged by that. Mm -hmm. And I do think as clothing becomes more multifunctional. And what I mean by that is, yeah, there's a guy over at MIT who's who's basically figured out how to, within a, 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 a basically a strand of fabric the size of maybe your human hair, you can actually create audio waves. It can actually um, transmit uh, color waves. It can actually have auditory capabilities of listening and seeing. All that within a strand of fabric the size of your human hair. And if you weave those together, eventually, and this will sound crazy now, but it's not that far off, clothes will be able to talk. Um, they'll be able to hear. They'll be able to play videos and be able to see. And you combine that with it being on your body the whole time. And how many of those do you really need? You may only need one outfit for the rest mm -hmm. of your life. And that is very interesting. Yeah. Oh, wow. That is kind of fascinating. Um, I mean, it, when I kind of think of something like that, I guess the immediate implications, I think more are probably on the, like the um, advertising side of it, of like, if an advertiser got a hold of this, again, if you, if the user allowed them, like there's just so much more data that somebody can learn about how you interact with the world, both if they can see here and then display what you're working on. So that, that is very interesting, I think, implications in multiple industries. It does. And think about it this way. You don't need a smartphone anymore. Your clothes will be smarter than your smartphone. Right. Yeah, that's, that's I mean, that's, yeah. And like on that side of it too, it could, then it'll also free up you to have, I guess, like on, because I know smartphones and technology on that side of it are also. And, and it also uh, modulate how cold or hot you are. It can monitor that and then it will adjust the heat or whatever the insulation requirements you need at that moment real time yeah. so it'll be dynamic clothing that lives breathes and kind of reacts to what your needs are at that moment um it's amazing to think about and you know one of the we we, we brought in a futurist to help us rethink what is it that we are as a clothing company and he said you know what you guys really should stop thinking of yourself as a clothing company start thinking of yourselves as a data company because what's the one thing that people have with them 24 7 it's clothes mm-hmm yeah, they truly do. So I'm I'm curious then on how all of this led up to your most recent book, um, which is Friction, Adding Value by Making People Work for It. Um, on the surface, that sounds like the opposite. I think you alluded to this earlier. Of like That sounds like the opposite of what you would want to do for your customers. But tell me a little bit more about the journey of this book and, and what do you mean by adding friction to your customers? Sure. So what happened is... Um... In the first book, Iconic Advantage, we looked at what really creates great iconic brands. And one of the things that does is having something that's differentiated, that's highly relevant. And in looking at what's these ideas of differentiation that creates relevance, 
a lot of these are embodied in signature, signature elements. So let's take uh, Corona beer. Corona beer is probably best known not only for the yellow color of the beer, but the idea that there's it's naked without a lime in the neck. The lime sort of represents this idea. It's the beach beer. It's vacation beer. You know, it is. It, it sort of reminds you of that. So, um, um, in helping businesses think about creating great signature elements, when we looked at it. A lot of great businesses create signature experiences that people remember them for. But most of these signature experiences wasn't being about the most seamless or most frictionless because at some point you become forgettable. Okay, just you just tend to just don't remember them. It's often the ones that actually require more attention from you that the ones that tend to stick. So let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. We've all purchased a USB, I don't know, whatever, you know, um, flash drive uh, at Best Buy. And it comes in this big plastic clamshell. We have to take scissors and we have to cut it open and we pry it open with our fingers. And it's a pain in the butt and it takes two minutes of our time and it's bad friction. Mm -hmm. Well, there's another company that thought about the idea of opening their products, but they really thought of them as opening a treasure chest. And in fact, the average time you spend opening one of their packages is well in the double digits. And that company's Apple. You know, if you think about your typical Apple package, it's usually boxed. It's usually first layers kind of exposed and you have to unwrap it. And then you get to the second layer and finally you get to the USB and the charger and everything else. It's all sort of multi-layer because they really treat their packaging and their products like a treasure in a treasure chest. Um, you know, when my son got his Apple Watch for Christmas, it took him 25 minutes to get it fully set up. That included the time to create his own account, to customize the colors and the screen and all this type of stuff that he got to choose on his own. But it took 25 minutes. And those were probably the, 20, the, the, the best 25 minutes of Christmas for him that he was invested in getting his Apple Watch set up. And so Apple's thought about, you know what? We're not going to make it easy. We're going to actually make it fun, harder, but funner and more engaging for you to actually get one of our products to actually work. Okay. And so that's an example of adding good friction into a system to create a more memorable signature experience. And so that was an aha moment for me. It's like, oh, these experiences, the ones that you remember, the ones that you um, I think have strong feelings about and and that stick with you mm -hmm. often are the ones that create dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, endorphins, and adrenaline. And when I looked at those so-called happy chemicals, it really dawned on me that in each one of those situations, you actually are, friction is actually required to do that. Dopamine is what they call sort of the reward drug, but part of the reward is the anticipation before the getting the award. Mm -hmm. And it's also the harder it is to get it, the, the bigger the payout is once you do get it, right? So if you make it too easy, there is no dopamine. There's no excitement. There's no anticipation. It's all kind of blah, right? Same with adrenaline. And oxytocin actually requires human contact or interaction or social engagement. You can't do that without making people interact. And, and, and you know, uh, what's the other one? Um, uh, serotonin is mm -hmm. the reward or respect drug. It is really about, hey, this idea of being able to one-up one, one up 
somebody else. And to gain that respect, and the harder you uh, have to prove yourself or demonstrate your worth, the more serotonin you get. And you, again, you if you if things are too easy and and you, you know it's very clear you didn't have to earn it, you don't have that same rush. So. All these happy, chem happy chemicals are all always elicited through some form of good friction. So the book really explores what are the seven sort of virtues of good friction and how do you actually use uh, good friction to create those happy chemicals to create those seven virtues. And we talk about these seven virtues being, hey, you can create engagement, mm -hmm. you can create meaning. You can create belonging. You can create rapport. You can create assurance. You can create competence, and you can create exclusivity with knowing how to employ that good friction. And when you take those seven things, they actually spell out the word embrace. Hmm. When we talk about, um, you know, everything from adrenaline, dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, endorphins, that actually spells a dose. So our catchphrase is embrace a dose of good friction, okay? And that will allow you to have those seven virtues and um, really activate those five happy chemicals. Mm -hmm. This is oh, wonderful. This is, um, as you were going through and describing this, I, I also like, I mean, I, I just bought an Apple phone recently because I've had my old one for years. And then that's like unboxing an Apple product has always been fun. And yes. I have been unboxing a lot of like in the last couple of weeks, I bought a new monitor. That wasn't fun. That was dreadful. And I hated it. And like other pieces of equipment. But when I unboxed my Apple phone, it was actually like it was, as you said, digging for treasure. It was like it was an exciting element, even though at the end of the day, I'm like, I had to set up my phone. I got to do all this. And there's a lot of extra work. And it took hours to kind of reset everything up. But that act, and I've always been, you know, I've, I've only been buying Apple products, I think now for like a little over 15 years, but it's like that act of doing that has been an element of joy and the best part about buying something from Apple and then setting it all up. It's true. You know, I do keynotes and sometimes I ask people, okay, how many of you have bought Apple products? About 90% of people raise their hands. I go, keep your hands up. How many of you have kept the package? 90% of the hands stay up, right? And I said, how many of you kept five? 88% of the people kept their, they keep their hands up. I've gone up to 17 packages. Somebody's actually kept 17 packages. I go, why? They go, well, it's like a work of art, or it's like I can't throw them away because they're, they they remind me of that fun experience. I get, I get it. Yeah, I, I so I was that person too until recently. I, I think it was a meme or something like that that like made fun of people like myself who were like, like you don't need to keep the Apple box anymore. <laughs> um, and so now I'm like, you're right, I don't need to keep the Apple box. But there was a time where I did, like in a separate in my basement, a separate area of just like boxes within boxes. Um, just because of that, like I thought it also added value. Like when I returned the item or resold it, if I gave the next mm. person that that experience um, on the resale market, now I just give it back to Apple. But that I felt, like, at least I felt like it meant something, you know, five or seven years ago. Um, yeah. So I'm I'm curious in your own life and experience and, and journeys, um, the, the idea of, of fear. And so you're someone who has, again, who's gone from multiple different companies and, and tried out new opportunities. How do you think about fear in whether you're designing a product and, and that side of it, or in your own journey from company to other opportunity? And how do you overcome those items or those times when you feel apprehensive or fearful? 
Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Um, you know, I love that uh, movie Dune, right? Fear is the mind killer, right? And you think deeply about that. And it's true. Um, at the same time, I think fear is important. I, I, I don't think I, I don't think you should live your life fearless. I, I don't think you'll live a full life if you become fearless. And so the relationship of fear and innovation, fear and um, what I call uh, personal development, I, I think they're very much tied together. Because when I look at the moments that I've grown the most, it's usually a simple pattern. It usually starts with some degree of, call it arrogance or hubris. Um, well, at first, it usually starts with some degree of you know hope and excitement, and then some early success that unfortunately leads a little degree of either hubris or arrogance. And then there's a big fall for me. I notice that when I become overly confident and I have a certain degree of hubris, those are the times when I fall in the hardest. Okay. Because, you know, I just wasn't being diligent. I didn't watch my back. I wasn't, you know, being careful. Um, and I let my guard down and bam, I fell really hard. And when I think about the idea of falling, a couple emotions hit you. First, there's obviously the shock of it. There is the pain or call it um, depression of, of realizing that, you, you know, disappointment. That's probably the word, disappointment, right? But then after you get over that, you can't, you can't live in disappointment forever. Humans just don't do that. But the next emotion is probably the strongest one. Once you've been disappointed and you kind of have a self-reckoning or, 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 you know, being honest with oneself, you realize, okay, I missed it. I, I failed. I didn't. I didn't do what I hoped to accomplish. The, the, the overriding emotion that hits you next is fear. You know, like, uh, am I a failure? Can I, how am I going to get up there? What if nobody wants me? You know, what if what I what if I'm not good enough? There's all these uh, moments and, and voices of doubt that hit you, and it's a strong emotion. But. I think the growth comes from not the disappointment, and it doesn't come from the fear. It comes from what is stemmed as the grit, determination, and courage. And, you know, courage is very vaguely or importantly defined as not the lack of fear, but it's the idea that you're fully present and aware of that fear, and it is the strength to overcome that fear. That is what courage is. And so... Finding it within yourself to overcome that fear, to look it in the face and say, I am afraid, but I'm going to try this. I'm going to try that. I don't know if this is going to work, but I am going to try. Um, <clears throat> that's actually what, when I look at it, really creates true growth and, and personal development. And so I think fear is, unfortunately, <laughs> an important component in personal development and growth. And if you really want to grow in your life, it just means that there you're going to have to probably put yourself into situations where you are uncomfortable, where you are going to have fears, and where you're going to have to, you know, um, really muster up that courage to overcome that fear. Mm -hmm. So, my my last question today, because I know we're almost out of time. By the way, let me let me yeah, set sure. a context. The reason I know a lot about that is because oftentimes I bring uh, open my um, keynotes with 
I'm probably the biggest failure ever met, but it's also the reason why I've learned so much. And I give them a scorecard. I talk about, okay, I've had five career relaunches. What that meant is I got fired five times. I've, I've done, um, I don't know, uh, I've had uh, six businesses dissolved that I started, you know, that I actually had the idea for that never saw the day of light. I've done, I don't know, seven or eight rounds of layoffs, which are really hard to do with people that you you, you brought in that you care about. I've had 30 product uh, launches. And then the last thing I always tell people is this number 300. I have people guess what it is. It's, I said it looks like a big number, but it's actually a very small number. And when I reveal what it is, people are kind of surprised, but it's the credit score I achieved. That's the lowest credit score you can achieve. And I've done it twice. So I, I understand the idea of failing. Trust me. I mean, uh, yes, it definitely sounds like you, you have. Well, so were there lessons that you have learned in these failing parts that you thought that you, that you wouldn't have learned otherwise that helped further on in your career? Or, or how have you then interacted with these times when things didn't work out like you wanted? So two things I would say from having failed so much, maybe three. Oh, the first is that there was a pattern to this failure, like I shared earlier. And mm -hmm. when I got too cocky or arrogant or, huber or had too much hubris, that was a huge warning sign. So a lot of times I will have people around me just always pressure testing me to make sure I'm not, my, my head's not getting too big. Okay. And the minute it is, then we all know, okay, oh boy. Okay. You know, it's probably a good warning sign that the storm clouds are forming. You better, you know, get, get, get you better pop that, 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 that pin in your head, right. Or put the pin in your head. Right. The, the second thing I think is this idea that, Hey, if I fall down, I'm going to be okay because I've fallen down many times before. So it gives me a certain degree of confidence that mm -hmm. I have the resilience to deal with failure. And the third, maybe this is for another talk, and I'm happy to come on later, but I have a whole talk, and this is probably my third book, where it's this idea that failure actually is the key competitive advantage if you treat yourself and view yourself as a working prototype Failure is actually a key component to actually self-improvement and by self-improvement and by introducing enough, what I call small failures and, and learning and growing from them, you're actually going to be a better prototype than other people. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, so I definitely want to invite you to come talk about that one because that's, I mean, that's, that's a very powerful concept and each of us, um, and I can say like specifically in my own career have like in a similar way, I've like had a lot of, we can call them failures, but like instances where things just didn't work out like I had planned, but they allowed me to propel myself to the next level or to some other industry, which then worked out much better. Um, I mean, my original plan was had everything worked out, I would be a designer on Broadway right now. Cause I originally studied set and costume design. Um, but Things didn't work out as I planned and the economy collapsed halfway through, you know, post my education. And so new things happened and evolved and um, some exciting opportunities have happened because of that. And I've been able to pull elements with them. So I, I think probably everybody has experiences like that where they can look at times where things didn't work out and how they learned and grew. So I think that's phenomenal. And I will bring you back for that one. Um, but before I let you go. What would you say is the best advice that you ever received? Yeah, so I was in a car. We were this at Clorox at the time, and we were driving our COO, the number two person, who had just come over from Clorox to work with us. 
um, at you know from actually yeah yeah it was a big coup because we actually stole this 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 incredible talent from Procter and Gamble and he was our CEO basically being groomed to be the CEO of Clorox and I had the privilege of driving him to the Stanford Business School to do a talk for our recruiting efforts and so I did ask him hey what's the best piece of advice anyone ever gave you and I'm and I have adopted it because it's the best piece of advice I ever got. And he said, look, you know, there are many people who are going to be more talented than you. Many people who are going to have more privilege than you and more opportunities and, and more entitlement than you're going to have. Okay. And life's not fair. And I go, okay, yes. And I kind of acknowledge it. I've, I've experienced all things. He goes, but he goes, the great equalizer. And in fact, it's more than the equalizer is effort. And that's within your control. And he said, effort will make up for any inequalities elsewhere. And as long as you put in the effort, over time, you, with, with effort and determination, you will be more successful than others that may have came in with more privilege, more opportunity, and, um, you know, uh, 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 say, uh, unfair advantage versus yourself. And... I've always taken that to heart. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's phenomenal advice. And it seems like just in following your own career, that that extra effort has definitely served you in multiple ways. It has. And by the way, that individual's name's Neil DeFeo. And I will always, he's, he's etched forever in my mind has given me seminal advice that I've, I've used throughout my career. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, soon. thank you so much for, for taking the time today to chat with me. I, I truly appreciate it. If the listeners would like to buy your book, follow you online, or get in touch with you, where are the best places they can go to do all of that? Uh, so, well, obviously, Amazon is a great place to search up any of the books I have. My name's fairly simple. It's S-O-O-N, soon, like early, and then U is Y-U. And I have a very easy website to get a hold of, soonyou.com. So that's probably the easiest way to get hold of everything. Fantastic. I will put those links in the show notes so they can click right through. Uh, but again, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of Advance Your Art with Yuri Cataldo. If you like this episode, please remember to give us a five-star rating, like, and share with a friend. Our theme music is written and mixed by Chicago-based composer Ryan Black of Black Bones Collaborative. To listen to the full catalog of our episodes, go to advanceyourart.com. To see what I'm working on or book a time with me or buy a copy of my book, Be Left Behind, go to yuricataldo.com. Thank you so much and have a great day.